0: Hello and welcome to All for Animals podcast. I'm your host Rachel, and today we're going to have a a bit of a triggering episode, but I feel it's it's pretty important. We're going to talk about Michael Vick and his bad news kennel. There's a lot about this story that I find very mind-boggling, and I felt like a lot of it kind of got swept under the rug. I There was so much of it that I felt like I had no idea about until I was specifically looking for all of the little bitty details in order to create this episode. And I feel like that has to be by design. You know, the man pays millions and millions of dollars to PR teams and their, their job is essentially to push this stuff under the rug. But I don't want to let that happen. So we're going to sweep it back out into the light. Michael Vick was born in Newport News, Virginia, which was also referred to as Bad News, and that's also um, where his kennel gets its name, or got its name. He was the second of four kids to Mother Brenda Vick and Father Michael Bodie. I'm sorry, Bodie. They were teenagers at the time and later on would marry when Michael Vick was about five years old. And the kids kept their mother's maiden name. Unfortunately, Michael was only seven years old when he saw his first dogfight. And it was apparently an incredibly common thing for him to see in his hometown. And after that first dogfight, he would become extremely active in the dogfighting community there before he was even 12 years old. So right off the bat, he's not getting a great start here. It doesn't bode well. So Michael Vick's story, at least the one kind of spun um, by like the NFL and all of the people talking about him as a famous person, they start off in that, you know, quote unquote boy from the project, projects makes it big sort of way. But unfortunately, at least in my opinion, it takes an extremely sharp turn from there. And a lot of articles and books and other resources that I was finding out in the world tend to focus a lot, like way too much on his athletic prowess. But that's not what we're here for. So I'm just going to remind everybody, if you're looking for information on his football career, there is plenty of that out there, but I'm not getting into it here. That's just not what we're going for. So let's dive in. It's it's a pretty horrible story, so I'm going to place a gigantic trigger warning for animal cruelty here, because there are going to be some parts that gra- get graphic. I will also make sure to remind everybody right before I discuss the more graphic things that they are, so if you'd like to skip over just those parts and not the entire episode, I got you. In April of 2007, over 70 dogs were seized from Michael Vick's 15-acre property, which was located in Surrey County, Virginia. This came after law enforcement officers uh, stumbled upon this major dog fighting ring while investigating some completely unrelated drug activity. Some of the dogs were very obviously injured and even though this was all on his property, it would take Michael Vick until October after many, many hours of questioning to finally admit his involvement, saying, quote, I did it all. I did everything. If you need me to say more, I'll say more. Unquote. It took him from April to October, and even then, he only gave this confession after having already failed his polygraph test. Now, here's another part of the episode where I am going to get a little bit more graphic uh, with specific details of some of the more horrendous things that Vic and his cohorts inflicted upon the animals at the Bad News Kennels. So, giant trigger warning for animal cruelty here, and if you need to skip over this part, it should only take a couple minutes. Cruelties that were experienced by the animals at the hands of Michael Vic, Tony Taylor, Qantas Phillips, otherwise known as Q, and Purnell Peace. The cruelties that they inflicted on the dogs included things like underperforming dogs being executed in horrific fashion, um, dogs being starved, beaten, and vigorously, violently provoked to try and get them riled up enough to fight, and fights lasting anywhere from 10 minutes to literal hours. It's estimated that about 80% of dogs in dogfight operations will not even make it to a test fight or a quote-unquote role, as it is referred to in the dogfighting world, mostly because, and this is heart-wrenching, they simply can't be provoked into engaging the other dogs in a fight. And unfortunately, we know what happens to those dogs who don't perform, quote-unquote. These operations would be more accurately labeled as dog-killing rings as far as I'm concerned, since that's the fate of the vast majority of the animals who are unfortunate enough to encounter them. The dogs either fight to the death, or they're killed because they either won't fight, or don't fight well enough. It's the definition of a lose-lose situation. I read way too many horrific accounts of the various ways these poor things were executed, And while I won't go into gory, gory detail, I will simply list the inhumane ways that they were killed. Hanging by a tree, being drowned in buckets, shot, electrocuted, and beaten to death. Now after just thinking about that for a moment, I'd like to take a second here and just read a couple of quotes about animals from some better humans than Michael Vick and his friends. Quote, It takes nothing away from a human to be kind to an animal. Joaquin Phoenix, quote, we can judge the heart of a man by his treatment of animals. Immanuel Kant, quote, how one treats other animals often reflects how one treats other humans. Anthony Douglas Williams. And my final quote is, compassion for animals is intimately connected with goodness of character, and it may be confidently asserted that he who is cruel to animals cannot be a good man. Schopenhauer. I feel all of those quotes really resonate with me because, in my opinion, you can't be a good person if you are capable of such unbelievable cruelty to such a completely innocent little helpless being. So this entire ring essentially um, started when Vic went around rounding up a group of his friends, including his own cousin to start and essentially manage and run the ring. The plan was for Michael to finance the new venture, and then his best friend since the sixth grade, Qantas Phillips, who he referred to as Q, would handle the more business and administrative side of things. Tony Taylor, who was known around town to be involved in dogfighting, ...would be responsible for the dogs themselves... ...and then Taylor would eventually bring on his cousin, Purnell Peace. Tony Taylor is the one who located the property that would become Bad News Kennels... ...and it sat at 1915 Moonlight Road. It was a 15-acre piece of land, which Vic bought for $34,000 only a month after signing his NFL contract... Which we also know means that this was in the works before he even was drafted. Or, I'm sorry, before he was even finished with the, like, signing process and everything. They, uh, the the team, the, uh, I guess, I don't know, what do you call that? Like, a team of villains. They procured a kennel license and began by boarding other people's dogs... While they started to build their quote unquote real business on the down low, uh, Taylor would bring in the first eight dogs and then all of the men would uh, set out to buy many, many more. They made up T-shirts, headbands and hats with their kennel name on them. So they freaking had merch. And then they built four very large sheds on the property and painted them all black there was a 20 stall kennel built with chain link walls and one of the sheds was modified to include a second story hoping to keep their more illegal doings a little bit more private and out of out of sight the sheds were full of training equipment a makeshift medical facility, a quote unquote recovery room for injured dogs or dogs who had just given birth, dog food, supplements to enhance performance, a rape stand used to force dogs to mate, old carpet remnants, and worst of all, the fighting pit covered in bloodstains and uh, bedding papers. So you may be wondering how police caught on to this whole operation. Vic's cousin Bodie lived on the property for a while, and when he was arrested for marijuana possession with intent to distribute, the property at 1915 Moonlight Lane was listed as his current address. So, of course, when police went to search for drugs, they found so much more than they were originally anticipating. So, of course, they had to call out a SWAT team to search the property, and the SWAT team runs into this man named Brownie. He's never identified as anything other than Brownie. He was in charge of keeping up the the land, the property. Brownie had previously actually already reported the illegal dogfighting ring to the Virginia police. And for whatever reason, nothing had ever come of it. So I feel like that's a major issue that that was left out of all of the, the news when this finally came to light later on because that's huge he had told vic and and company that quote someday they would pay for what they did to the dogs unquote and thankfully once the swat team arrived it seemed like that day was finally actually arriving he brownie showed the officers the illegal side of bad news kennels the one that they were hiding and the dogs were mostly healthy but um, also sporting some old and fairly intimidating scars. They weren't aggressive towards the officers though. Many of them were jumping up and wagging their tails, wanting to be pet, and many of them also unfortunately would cower when officers came near them because they they were used to being hit. The officers worked towards getting the dogs to safety which, of course, is always going to be a Herculean task. Their, their local shelters didn't have nearly enough space for all the dogs. And so many more rescues and shelters and animal control offices would have to come together and kind of divvy up the dogs amongst themselves. Because over 70 dogs, that's way too much for any one facility to be able to take on all at once. Before this particular case, dogs who had been seized from a fighting operation were almost always going to be deemed too dangerous and not not even be given a chance at rehabilitation. But this particular case made history. By changing that, when rescue organizations basically rallied around these dogs and overall... 47 of that original over 70 number were saved and rehabilitated which I think is it's beautiful it's amazing and so I mean that's such a good high number of these dogs who were born into some of the literal worst circumstances and then got to go on and lead happy lives and enrich their humans lives as well so It ripples out. The positive here really ripples out, and I'm going to try and focus on that. Unfortunately, the last of the Vic dogs, Frodo, passed away at the ripe old age of 15 in December of 2021. And forgive me if you guys are hearing snoring, that's going to be my little guy, Miyagi. He's sitting here, um, quote unquote, supervising while I record, and apparently I'm putting him to sleep. So I am very happy and proud to say that as of 2008 participating in and even simply watching dogfighting is now a felony offense in all 50 states. I am shocked it took that long but I am thrilled that we are there now. Unfortunately obviously everyone knows that a lot of work is still going to have to be done as far as actual enforcement of that as well as like the penalties Since uh, a lot of the times the penalty amounts to, as in this case, essentially a slap on the wrist. But this is still a gigantic step in the right direction, so that needs to be celebrated. I'm going to call this part extra, extra, read all about it, since it's mostly the PR and (sighs) social fallout that happened when uh, Vic was caught red-handed. Immediately... When this news broke, so many people jumped immediately to defending Michael Vick. Vick himself, of course, played and continues to play the victim, saying he'd been taken advantage of by the people he'd tried to take care of and been, you know, pulled into this whole ordeal. Here's the thing, though, that I want everybody to remember. And if you have to, you can always um, skip backwards a a few minutes because I already addressed this. Vic was the one who started all of this. He approached Tony Taylor before he had even signed that NFL contract that he's trying to say people were essentially using him for. It was all his idea. So he's all he's doing here is further minimizing his role in all of this, which just I mean, you got caught red handed. Your fingerprints are all over this entire thing. Take some freaking responsibility. It's it's disgusting. Um this this PR campaign was actually so intense that Bill Brinkman the deputy sheriff really struggled to get this case actually taken seriously, which is just yet another thing I can't wrap my head around. The warrant allowing the search of the property would be questioned simply because apparently a dog had detected the marijuana on Devon Bodie in public, which I guess is a no-no. If somebody has more experience with these laws, please explain that to me because I'm not entirely sure I understand the significance of that. But essentially lawyers had to quibble over whether there was actually any credible evidence, even while Bill Brinkman, our deputy sheriff, detailed all of the gruesome findings of the search, as well as that, um, groundskeeper brownie his accounts of his experiences with the dogfighters so they have an eyewitness as well as several federal inmates placing vic at the dogfights seems like a pretty big slam dunk to me because they have witness testimony they have physical evidence and they have all of the more administrative evidence where it's very obvious that vic was orchestrating all of these Business dealings surrounding the entire organization as well. So additional warrants to exhume bodies of the deceased fight dogs were eventually granted to allow the investigators to further demonstrate the validity of their case and perform necropsies to determine the dog's causes of death necropsy is um, just the word for an autopsy on an animal and uh, here's the thing i don't understand why why they had to have so much additional help i guess in order to get this case taken seriously to me it sounds like everybody in the law enforcement side of well not everybody but a lot of of this was being shoved under the rug from the get-go and it's just the amount of fighting that had to be done to have the truth uncovered is just boggling my mind. Forensic veterinarian Dr. Melinda Merck volunteered to examine the bodies of the dogs exhumed from the property and um, help solidify the case. And even with all of that physical evidence on Vic's property, his own admission to participating in these fights, executing the poorly performing dogs, and financial or yeah, uh, finan- financing the entire operation... He would only serve 21 months in prison for, quote, conspiracy in connection with an illegal interstate dogfighting enterprise, unquote. Which I would also like to point out here has nothing to do with the actual animal cruelty. And worse still, if you go on Google right now and search for news articles, videos, or any other public coverage of this, including his own, autobiography, which I most certainly do not recommend, it was just filled to the brim with name dropping, playing the victim, and the stereotypical I rediscovered God in prison bit, as well as a heavy dose of PR polishing. His role in the case is extraordinarily downplayed in every public forum. He is most often referred to as simply being the money behind it all, which, don't get me wrong, that would still be absolutely abhorrent in and of itself, but Thanks to his massive PR team, he is most often referred to as simply being the the money behind it all, which definitely, don't get me wrong, that would still be absolutely abhorrent in and of itself, but thanks in large part to his massive PR team and his prowess on the football team, the general public was pretty much all too quick to, you know, forgive and forget the... Atrocities. It took less time than he served in prison for his PR team to turn his reputation around. And then he was right back on the field yet again playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. I remember when Vic was first charged, and I remember being outraged at the Piddly sentence he was given. But I hadn't realized until I was doing the research for this episode that he went right back to playing for the NFL. For some reason, I I guess I missed the news that day. Now, I know that dog fighting is actually far more common in the US than the general public is aware. There are over 16,000 dogs dying as a direct result of around 44,000 humans involved in this quote unquote sport every year. And I'm very aware that there are people out there who believe that Vic was made into a scapegoat of some kind and that Vic shouldn't be punished harshly because of that mindset that there's so many worse operations out there and whatnot. But here's the thing. It continues that unbelievably infuriating tradition of sweeping actual crimes under the rug simply because someone is rich or famous or a pro sports player. It, it sends the message that the NFL is more important than deliberate acts of violence and cruelty. Vic himself has been quoted even as saying that he, quote-unquote, knew deep down that the dogfighting operation was morally wrong, but said he had no clue it could lead to people, quote-unquote, losing their freedom. Just once again showing how he's really more concerned with the damage done to him than any form of actual remorse for his violence and cruelty. He also claims to feel that remorse for his actions, yet when I was looking for his own public statements on his time in prison, I found this delightful little gem. This is a quote from USA Today. Vic shared he'd also helped his fellow prisoners grow by giving the grapes on how to improve their illegal sports gambling odds. Quote, they had their own little brackets and little things going on, getting insight from me. I gave it to him. I can't say I was always right. I was, a, I was right a majority of the time, unquote. Um, these, these don't sound like the words of a quote-unquote reformed criminal, or even just someone who feels even remotely bad for their actions. He was literally helping other prisoners improve their own gambling skills and upping their odds. To me, I don't think you can find any better evidence that he has not learned the damn lesson here. I wholeheartedly believe in second chances and redemption. I really, truly do. But I cannot, for the life of me, understand how anyone capable of that kind of callousness and outright cruelty could ever possibly be a good person because to my way of thinking inflicting this kind of harm on some of the most innocent and eager to please little fuzzy beings full of love it's it's pure evil plain and simple too many people i feel were support or were upset that a sports icon was being quote unquote dragged down by this entire operation And I need to chime in there and say that I too am deeply disappointed when the people that we look up to, whether they're sports players or politicians, authority figures, celebrities, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm deeply disappointed every time I hear of yet another one involved in some kind of awful crime. But I'm never disappointed that they're actually being held accountable because so often they really aren't. Like I said earlier, it's usually, it amounts to a slap on the wrist. And the problem here is not that Vic was held accountable or his little cohorts. The problem here is that Vic and his partners felt that they could commit all of these atrocities and not have to face any form of repercussions for it. Everyone knows the quote, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think it's a great way... To describe how we should be holding our celebrities, sports stars, and other, you know, heroes responsible. People are looking up to you. Give them something worthy of looking up to. At least that's my philosophy. Now, I'd really like to end this episode on a much happier note. And I think that the vast majority of listeners will appreciate that this isn't where the the story or the saga of 1915 Moonlight Lane ends. It actually ends, well, it's not, it hasn't ended at all, I guess, but it, it goes on to a much happier place because in 2011, just four years after Mike, Michael Vick's uh, whole operation was unveiled, a rescue called Dogs Deserve Better was actually able to purchase the property the entire property. And they've turned it into an amazing rescue, like rehabilitation center for all of the abused and neglected dogs that they can help. Uh, It started off only being able to house about 12 dogs and now they are able to house and take care of 20 dogs uh, in the facility. And I just, I love how full circle that is. I love that this place went from basically hell on earth to now being a safe haven and a place for hope and possibility for future generations of mistreated, abused, and abandoned dogs. Now, I'm going to include a few of my sources. They are amazing books in this uh, episode's show notes. I'm not going to link his book, Uh, it's easy enough to find, and I don't feel that it's actually helpful in getting any of the facts of this investigation. It's mostly a way for him to play victim about the consequences he faced, which, yeah, I already covered that. So, if anybody has any case suggestions, not case suggestions, story suggestions, um, news articles, interesting facts, anything like that that they'd like to share. Please feel free to send those to our email. It is allforanimalspodcast at gmail.com. I will also be posting some links and photos on the show's Instagram. That is All For Animals Podcast. And you can find us also on Facebook and TikTok at All For Animals Pod. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next time.